Here at Tech Stalks, we constantly strive to spotlight authentic music trailblazers, which is why we're stoked to have Tech Stalks styled by Ray-Ban this summer, helping us in our pursuit of featuring artists who are not afraid to be their authentic selves. Ray-Ban is your reflection in the mirror of your truest self. It's the shade on a hot summer's day. It's your own focus regardless of any spotlight that may be on you. Together, Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban are saying, if you've got a challenge for us, no matter what it is, you're on. You can't predict the light, but with Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban, you're always ready to capture it by living each day in the moment. Follow the light at www.rayband.com. And welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to a bona fide South African music legend. She is a multi-platinum selling and 11-time South African Music Award winning Afro-Soul vocalist who fuses elements of funk and jazz to create music that is both wholly unique and emotionally stirring. From performing for Madiba to representing us on multiple world stages to having a Barbie doll made in her honor, this woman really has done it all, and she is a warm and welcoming inspiration to the next generation of vocalists. I am, of course, talking about Lyra. Lyra, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very happy that it's the festive season and that we can get some sort of reprieve after this manic year. How, uh, how do you normally celebrate the festive season? I love to be home for Christmas, so I don't actually do holidays, but I, I love to host the family, my cousins, my uncles. So um, every little gap that I get, um, I'm having a little party at the house, mm-hmm. normally. Um, and then in between, of course, I'm doing gigs because it is our busiest season. Um, and we're very fortunate also in 2020 that we're quite busy. Um, but I will be having less parties, of course, this year, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so that's the only thing I'm sad about. But I'm the kind who decorates the house. I literally doll the whole house up. Oh my god! And I bring. Yes. I love it. I love it. I've got lights galore, and I'm very careful to already, or rather, I prefer trees that are sort of not European. So like uh-huh. the minimalist trees, something different, like a real African Christmas in that sense. But yeah, the whole house is looking stunning. You know, I know that this year isn't a normal year and and everyone's festive season plans have changed because of lockdown. But before we went into lockdown, you decided quite spontaneously to go to Namibia for what you thought was going to be like a 21-day getaway. But then like... Six months later, Lyra, you emerge like a full-on desert queen and you're announced as the official Namibian tourism ambassador for South Africa. You have to tell me about this experience because <laughs> because in, in my mind, if anybody turned lockdown around, like it's you. Oh, I tell you, as a result, I had an amazing year. I really, I'm so grateful that I followed the hunch, you know, to go. Mm. So I, I, I had no idea what to expect. But since last year, I've kind of been embracing solo travels so that wasn't a big deal I was like okay off to another adventure no big deal um, and uh, lockdown there was fun sort of just getting used to life over there it was a bit weird in the first month in that you know there was no gig to go to there were no emails to respond to so life was really slow up so that was really really weird but as soon as certain restrictions were lifted I was free to explore Namibia mm. and that's basically what I did I mean 
I was negotiating at Airbnbs to stay at very, very reasonable prices. <laughs> so I just made the best of that experience, you know, it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I just really spent the time mostly in isolation, but absolutely fulfilled, absolutely having the time of my life. And then when I came out of it, um, I met someone who was actually an old friend that I hadn't seen for 22 years. I went to school with him and he's in tourism. And he was so blown away with everything I'd experienced. He, he, you know, then they offered me you know, this, the ambassadorship just like that. Incredible. And it was a natural fit. And the reason I didn't come back to South Africa was because we couldn't perform anyway. And I was mm. able to, to work online. So there was really no urgent need for me to come back. So I really just enjoyed this glorious open space in this wonderful country. And um, yeah, it made me really happy. So one of my favorite stories about you is when you were attending Val University, <clears throat> well, the Val University of Technology, and you're studying accounting, right? But can we just take a second for one of your side hustles as a student that was running a hair salon from your room? Like, like were you were you legit making money? And whose hair were you doing? Like, I'm fascinated by the skill that you have, Vera. <laughs> you know, it was actually my mom's... Um, doing that I ended up doing here. So my mom used to let me cut her hair and style her hair. So that's how, that's how I picked up the skill. So the students would come for me to, to me for styling for haircuts. And I charged 10 bucks for a haircut. However, when there was like an event over the weekend, like let's say a bash or something like mm -hmm. this, I could make up to 500 bucks. That's proper money. Just... Just, I mean, for a student, brah, that's rich. <laughs> that's rich. So it was great. I mean, guys and girls would come through. Mostly girls would come have their hair styled. Um, the guys would come for a quick trim. And it was easy peasy, you know. And I could do it in between my classes. And on the weekends, my classes would end at 11. So from Friday morning, pretty much, Friday midday, I was cutting hair, styling hair. Up until Saturday, usually. And then sometimes they'd come in on Sundays just to prepare for the week ahead. But basically, I'd do that in the, on the weekends. And my roommate never really spent time um, in the room on weekends. So I was literally free to push business. <laughs> when was the last time you did someone's hair? Um, oh, just two weeks ago. I cut, I cut um, a friend's hair, a Caucasian friend's hair, actually. Oh, my God. You're a woman of many talents, Lyra. <laughs> No, I, I didn't know this about you at all. It's amazing. But but another job that you had, which I thought was also very interesting, was you were working as a credit controller at Morkel's. Yeah. And, and you know, you you were forced to hone your Afrikaans there because, like, everyone's Afrikaans. Yeah. And, then, and then one day you just decide, like, nah, fam, this isn't for me, and you hand in your resignation letter. But when – when does music become your focus? And then, and how did you go about putting sort of any plan into action or was it just, you know, you're like, music is now what I'm going to do? Mm, so, you know, after having worked for two years, it was great and all, really was wonderful, but I wasn't fulfilled, you know? So I remember I would sit there and daydream about performing. Mm. And so I did write a five-year plan, a very, very ambitious one, might I add, but I did have some sort of a plan. Um, mind you, I'd been working for two years and I had a little bit of savings. So I had saved up enough, enough money to survive for a year. And I felt 365 days should be enough time 
to get my act together in terms of music. And so my thought was that I would, you know, develop a body of work, write some songs, record a demo, and then look for a record deal. Hopefully get signed within that same year. And then, you know, just take it from there. Um, the five-year plan included me winning a Grammy eventually. <laughs> like I said, it was highly ambitious. Um, but there was a plan, um, at least for the first year. I, I was like, okay, you know, I'm just not sort of quitting cold. I'll, I'll be able to live, you know. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, I literally got signed two weeks after I served my notice. What? It was literally that easy. People ask me, did you go to Idol's? No, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I was very, very fortunate. Um, and I think some some of that law of attraction stuff was at work because I wrote this letter and I still uh, remember writing the letter to God because I picked up a, um, a verse in the Bible that says, submit your plans to the Lord and he'll direct thy steps. So I was like, okay, so here's the plan. <laughs> here's my five-year plan. Um, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to show up for it. I, I expect you to direct my steps. So when it happened with that much ease, I felt like it was a straight up answered prayer, like straight up. And it was really easy in the sense that there was a perfect opportunity waiting for me when I, I, I arrived. It, we were going to hook up with some girlfriends of mine. It was my birthday. We hadn't seen each other since um, varsity days. And so... Her brother runs a record label. Although I'd known this, it never occurred to me to ask her to hook me up with her brother because they were more of a quieto stable. So they were never in my radar. However, when I happened to be there, they were going to have auditions uh, for an R&B singer. So I literally happened to be at the right time with the perfect opportunity waiting for me. And just like that, the day they met me, the day they auditioned me, they offered me a contract. That's Incredible, and that label—that was that was Arthur's label, right? Nine, nine, that's nine. It. That was Triple Nine Music. That's nine. right. That's right. That's incredible. And then, how long after you signed were you on stage? So they invited me um, to a show the next day. Of course, I had no material. <laughs> they just invited me to experience what it's like, you know, the celebrity life. And I remember the first distinction was being on the other side of the fence. Mm. You know, when you're at a concert, I was like on the other side with the tag that says crew or artist. And just that distinction alone, I was like, oh my gosh, I have totally crossed over. <laughs> I, I really felt like, wow. But what really overwhelmed me in a way, the, 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 the fans didn't know who I was, but just because I was with the other celebrities, I was being grabbed and, mm -hmm. and screamed at. And I was just so overwhelmed. And from that day, I felt like it was necessary to sort of separate myself, sort of preserve a sense of myself, because I knew that there was a part of me that would belong to the people if I, if I was on this journey. Mm. And so that's when I created the, the stage name Lyra. I wanted to have a stage name, but it was more like a mental coping mechanism for me because I know I'm, I'm very reserved, you know, I'm very sort of ordinary in many ways. And I was just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to cope with this? And so that was the first thing. But um, uh, let's see, I think it took that first year actually for me to get on stage because I had worked on my first little demo and... Um, there was a launch that Arthur was putting on for one of the artists. And then I was given an opportunity to just test out my music with the audience. And I actually ended up making the Sunday papers. 
They called me the new J-Lo without the booty. <laughs> Miss Jennifer Lopez! <laughs> oh, and with the real voice. <laughs> Oh wow! That's a, I'm, I, I hope you have that that cut out like framed on your. I still do. Oh my god! And I'm so tiny, so young, so skinny. I'm always been skinny, but I'm like extra skinny over there. <laughs> no, and so but then in in 2003, you then drop your debut album, All My Love, yes. and it's literally the stuff of like debut dreams, and you're winning metros and summers, and the title track off that album even knocks like Beyonce's Crazy in Love right off our local chart number one. If you could describe that time of your life using one word, what would that word be? Um, almost unbelievable. You know, and I think that the disbelief would come from, it took me three years to get there, you know, to, to for this dream to materialize. And I'd gone through so much ups and downs to have this album out that part of me was slightly broken as a result of, you know, the processing, going through the process of getting that album out. Mm -hmm. That when, when all these wonderful things were happening, I just, yeah, my mind was, it was almost unbelievable. You know, it was amazing. Um, but now there, there is, there is another side to the story. As much as I was, I, I mean, I think I had seven singles that were on, yeah, there seven singles on high rotation at the time. And so my music was really being played all throughout the radio stations and it was wonderful, but I was still not being able to make a living, mm. you know? And so it was like, oh, you're famous, but you're seriously broke. <laughs> and so that was tough. Yeah. It was just a very tough um, time in my life, but the album itself was doing well in terms of airplay. It was hard to get it to move off the stores because what I noticed is that as much as people were familiar with the music, they didn't make the association that it was a South African artist or that it was me. So there was like a, a discrepancy in the marketing. And so things like that really frustrated me and made me realize that I really have to go down, go back to the drawing board as to how I approach this. It's like I had, I had an amount of success, but not enough to create a life out of it, you know? Listening to you speak, I feel like your debut album in a lot of ways was a springboard for you, but also a really good learning curve because Absolutely. then, yeah, because like you said, you went back to the drawing board and and after you left Triple Nine Music and then you signed to Sony Music, after you dropped Feel Good, I feel like Feel Good, hearing you talk about that time is an amalgamation of everything that you've learned. And, and it really, I mean... It was after you launched Feel Good that you became this this huge household name. Absolutely. And then and not only even in South Africa, but two years later you released it in Italy and it was also so well received. And what describe that international recognition to me, especially in a, a country that's a bit more left field, more, you know, a more romantic European country like Italy. Right. Right. I mean, that was really the stuff of dreams. That's not something that was necessarily in my radar. I didn't think we could accomplish something like this. And we went gold. We actually sold gold in, in Italy. It was phenomenal. And that was the first time I flew out of the African continent. That's the first time I flew overseas was to promote that album. And I mean, I was right in my dreams and I just, you know, it's just priceless. And I just knew with Feel Good, of course, I'd learned so much. I was a different person. So I knew that my, my life had changed forever. 
Um, but that international recognition just felt like my dreams were beginning to come true on a very big scale, you know. Mm. And the the Italians absolutely loved it. To be quite honest, they 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 love our our African sisters from my experience. <laughs> I'm Italian and I can say that yes. <laughs> my my I was born in South Africa but my country men are they're great. <laughs> it's always been my experience. I love it there. <laughs> but you know, I was also thinking uh I remember in 2009 when you released your live in concert a celebration at Carnival City and you did that before live streams were a thing right mm. and you got mm. you get nine million people to tune into a telecast which sure. I mean back then is just I mean you're listening to me and you're like wow <laughs> but really I mean, it's amazing <laughs> and then not only that but your DVD goes three times platinum and then you win another summer I can't I can't keep track of all the summers that you now have. You probably have a whole extra house for all of your awards. <laughs> but but who were some of the people that were instrumental in putting a show and a telecast like that together? Because the the planning and and the execution and everything was on like another level. Something that I really don't think I anyway had seen before you did that. No, it's true. We had um it was quite a, a visionary project. Um my manager at the time, Robin, um, business partner at the time, um, was really behind uh, the, 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 the production quality of it, you know. So all I did was kind of sit there and dream. Mm. I would just paint all these amazing pictures to him. And so he was a great practical uh, executor, you know. And, um, and the reason we even had this DVD is because we were noticing that at every show, some, there was like a kind of magic that was going on, the relationship between me and the fans. And I longed to almost be in the audience when I perform to experience what I perceive my, my audience to be experiencing. Because, of course, I know how I feel on stage. There's like so much love. There's such energy, um, this beautiful exchange. And we wanted to capture that. We wanted to just capture this magic. So, you know, it was going to, it had to be a very detailed thing, but also I wanted to know that once this DVD was captured, I could send it, send it around the world so that I could, um, get booked in international festivals. Mm -hmm. That was my intention. And at the time DVDs didn't sell much in South Africa. Um, but my intention was that I wanted to, uh, to produce a high quality product that, you know, that would speak to me in other markets. And so I remember Sony and I went half-half. Um, we, we, we had a joint venture uh, for this project. And it was quite expensive, obviously, because, you know, it was the first full HD DVD in the continent, um, which subsequently we released the first Blu-ray um, uh, Blu disc in, in Africa mm -hmm. as well. So it was a very revolutionary thing for the continent. I mean, we held the the record for being the first production in the world to ever use 11 red cameras. It's a very specific camera. So this was a big deal in terms of the film industry. The only other film that has broken that record is The Hobbit. Oh, wow. And that was years later. <laughs> so it was exciting, you know. It was now exciting to be, you know, groundbreaking in that sense. And again, we captured that magic and indeed, South Africans just loved it. You know, it became like a part of every household pretty much in South Africa. And it was just a great way to really expand my market as well. 
Mm, it's definitely a part of our music canon for sure. But w- was there any point during the release of of the DVD that you know you think, wow, I'm actually changing the face of the South African music game, or was it more sort of post the marketing? Once everything is done, you know, you you sat back and you went, wow, you know, as a team, we really achieved something phenomenal here. Oh yeah, well. In the beginning, we knew we were achieving something unique. But because historically, DVDs were not selling much in the country, I didn't, I didn't expect anything from that. I was just putting it out, you know, because you know, also my intention was, okay, it's okay even if it doesn't sell. That My mission is really so that I can have something to sell, send around the world. So it blew my mind. It actually went platinum in two weeks. Now that I did not expect. I I, I did not expect that. It was, wow. I mean, and I think what it taught me again is you've got to trust your gut. And, and sometimes you don't know what the outcome will be. But if you feel propelled to do something, you need to just go for it. Mm. You need to absolutely go for it. You know, and then off the back of that incredible concert, you're then invited oh. to perform at the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Which, I mean, it's a huge honor. And and you performed a rendition of Miriam Akeba's Pata Pata. And you've mentioned on several occasions that she's one of your idols. So, I don't know, can you even begin to describe what it feels like performing that song with, I don't know, like a billion people (laughs) listening to you and watching you? I mean, I think that was certainly the largest audience I have ever performed for. And to be able to open up the, 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 you know, World Cup concert with the whole world watching was phenomenal. And I performed with another great icon of mine, Huma Sigela. Um, it's the stuff of dreams, you know? I, and then it's moments like that, actually, that make you feel like, hmm, you haven't done too badly for yourself, <laughs> young lady. Kind of sit back and go, wow, I'm actually here. I'm actually doing this. Such you an know? overachiever, Larry, making us all look bad. <laughs> and that performance alone opened up so many international opportunities. Huge. I mean, we were invited, me and Hugh were invited to perform in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So that was epic, you know? It was awesome. That's incredible. And then you're also invited to perform Nelson Mandela's favorite song for his 92nd birthday, another performance that was shown across the world. What did it mean to you personally to perform for Madiba? You know, he really is a very personal icon in this sense. Um, Obviously, I did grow up in South Africa during apartheid, and um, I realized that whether one likes it or not, it it sort of taints you. It, it, It was like a part of my formative years. So when I looked at Madiba um, and when I was struggling to make my career work and just feeling trapped and restricted and constricted, I remember reflecting on him and thinking, well, he had physical walls and bars around him, right? And um, he didn't become embittered by that entire experience. So what excuse do I have? You know, I, because sometimes when your life doesn't work, you start looking for excuses outside of yourself, you know? So something about that story helped me break through my, excuse my French, my, my bull, mm. <laughs> you know, um, that I was actually restricting myself by my own thinking. And so I appreciated his story so much 
because I used it to feel, fuel my own. And really when I was singing for him that day, it was really just to say, thank you. Thank you so much for literally inspiring me to find my own freedom and to stop making excuses and to actually do something with my life. And, um, yeah. And what better way to then to sing a song that he likes and loves, you know? Mm. And I mean, you know, when you, when you look back at all of this, like performing at the FIFA world cup, performing Madiba's favorite song for his birthday, uh, you know, conquering Italy and making such a great impression on the Italians, you know, and, and performing on all of these international platforms and having all of these doors open for you. And then you decide that, you know, you want to capitalize on this and you want to tour the States, but mm. your label doesn't support the move. And, and, you know, you, you take on the whole thing financially. Like why was it so important for you to take your music to the States, even if it meant taking on that financial risk? Mm-hmm. Well, it was part of the original dream and the original five-year five year plan. Yeah, it's exactly. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the worst things for me is to know that I can't do something. It, I, I don't like to hear those words, you know? And so I was like, well, fine, if you won't help me, I'm, I'm going to find a way. And it's like I had done so many things that I, I did never even imagine that I'd actually managed to do that I, I wanted to see if I could at least do it, you know? Don't tell me off the bat that I can't do it. And so... I felt I owed it to myself to, to go towards my dreams. I mean, I'm an advocate of that. And my life had already given me the impression that I, I can do anything. So I was like, it's okay. And then I thought to myself, what am I going to do with all my resources anyway if I don't use them to pursue my dreams? So for me, it was logical. It was like, if you want something done, sometimes you have to get up and do it yourself. And so, I mean, it was a calculated risk. But I think it was very, very worth it. Uh, the experience is incredibly rewarding. And it was fulfilling for me to now begin to perform in exciting parts of the world. It actually led to the Barack Obama uh, performance and invitation. So if I didn't show up there, that opportunity wouldn't have happened. Talk to me about that Barack Obama invitation and, and performance. Now, I remember when they called me, I thought they were pranking me, you know. <laughs> I thought someone was throwing a prank. I was like, what are the chances that I would sing for South Africa's first black president and also sing for America's first black president? What are, what are the chances, honestly? And I remember one of the people that were organizing actually flew down to South Africa for a meeting. So I was like, oh, wow, so this is actually happening. But it was incredible to be, I'll call it, in the inner circle of the guests that were part of that event um just being in the states at the time and oh my gosh i've never felt so much cold in my life <laughs> it was freezing <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock to the system but i was deeply on it you know and uh, just a, another very big career highlight being there so yeah it's one of the ones that i'm very very proud of you know it must also be quite nice to go to the states or, or to have gone to the states to the states and and do normal things like, you know, go out and buy groceries because back home, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's, you know, a bit challenging to do everyday tasks without signing like an autograph or 10. I mean, like Maponyana Mall in Soweto named a courtyard after you. <laughs> and, 
And then, and then, like very recently, you were invited to cut the ribbon at that super fancy new checkers in Rosebank that yes. I got lost. <laughs> but like, is there anything that you that you miss about anonymity? There's a lot I miss about anonymity. It's just like I said, I'm very, I'm very normal, <laughs> and I kind of struggle with people putting me up on a pedestal um, because I don't believe in people putting anyone above or beneath you. So I, I do miss that, and, and I suppose that's why I like. Being in the States, I usually spend a month or two every year and I spend a month in Europe as well. And I kid you not, I walk everywhere. I walk everywhere. I love it. Of course, in LA, you can't. But I also enjoy driving in the States because mm. you drive on the other side of the road. And I, I, I enjoy having an apartment and, and doing groceries. You're so right. Cooking and just those, those normal things being even the most to me on that side. And it's weird. It's like you 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 want to be successful and have people love you, but you also want to be normal. <laughs> so it's always a bit of a struggle. And then I also understand that people are like that because they, they love you, you know. They love and, and appreciate what you do. And it's just that I think I've always struggled with it because of my personality. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that you're quite a private person. So being in the public eye obviously means that you have very little privacy. And I mean, case in point, when you and your husband of many years, who's also your producer and your manager, when you called it quits, you kind of broke the internet. But like, how do you keep anything to yourself or any part of yourself private with people being so interested in your life? Well, I try. It's an effort, you know, um, and it's because I'm trying to retain normalcy. Like I actually needed to function. Um, and I probably would have never spoken about it if I didn't have media sort of hounding. Mm-hmm. Somehow word got out. And I just didn't want it to be read in the newspapers before I said anything. So then we spoke about it and we decided to um, release a statement. But I think it's hard enough having to deal with life as it is. And then it's even harder when you've got the glaring eyes of millions of people in your business, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just can't function like that. I just, I, you know, I, I, even my life now, in as much as I'm Lyra, I, I have a lot of normalcy in it. <laughs> because like I said, I really needed to function normally. I, I, I need it. You know, your career has been so full of pinnacles that I've mentioned over the course of this podcast. But, you know, when Barbie honored you, by creating a Lira doll for their 60th birthday. South African musician Lerato Mulapo, popularly known as Lira, has become the very first African woman to have a Barbie doll modeled in her likeness. That looks exactly like you. And then you become the first African woman to be honored in this way. What do you think it means for all girls across Africa to be able to play with Barbies that actually look like them, like Barbies that they can relate to? Exactly. You know, that's, that's exactly the point is that they, they are seen, they matter, they, they matter out there in the world. Their beauty is, is honored and seen and celebrated. That's really what it was about. And I think it's important for young girls to know that at a young age, it, it changes your whole way in which you move through the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think of myself as a young girl, we didn't even have makeup that was our skin tone you know, yeah. back then. There were just so many different things. And so it has little subtle effects on, on your self-perception. And so it excites me because I feel like with young girls, they have less of those issues that they have to contend with growing up. 
So the Barbie was was really just a, a very and for um just a very big statement. And for me, it was so affirming given my journey. I remember companies that wanted to work with me, um, but they'd ask me if I could wear a weave. And it's like they were saying my beauty wasn't enough, like how I looked wasn't right. And there was another big corporate that um, put me as part of their campaign. And then they photoshopped my nose and my lips. I was so heartbroken. Oh, wow. So those are some of the struggles I've had to, some of the things I've had to come through in the industry. And so to have something iconic like a Barbie pick me to represent African beauty was like a big moment, you know? So for me, it, it had a lot more weight because I've had to struggle through the perceptions out there to get to this point. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it's a, it's a literal trophy for all this this journey that I've I've traveled through, and hopefully, little girls like me who look like me won't have to argue for their beauty and how they look like. Definitely, I think that that's very very important, which is why the whole uh, Barbie honoring you makes makes so much sense and is such a huge yeah, is such a huge cornerstone in your career. Um, very much. Where is your Barbie in your house? She's actually right in front of me. <laughs> As you spoke, I was just looking at her and saying all these things while I'm gazing at her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's in my office in a nice little display cabinet. Um, and, yeah, really my pride, of, my pride and joy. It's so beautiful. And then I have to ask about your stint as a mentor on The Voice because you're the only one who sat in the red chair for three years in a row. And I know, okay, I know that you're not supposed to have favorites, but who stands out to you from your teams over the seasons as a powerhouse vocal talent who you think has a very bright career in the industry? Well, without a doubt, Zoe Mudeja. Um, she's actually one of my favorite vocalists in the country. Yeah, she's incredible. She's absolutely phenomenal. And um, I mean, the first day I heard her, I thought, wow, she just, and she's, to me, she's quite unique, you know, mm. and I'm so excited to see her career thriving. Um, so she's certainly uh, top of my list. I also quite like, I think he was on your team, Yatu Craft. <laughs> oh my. My gosh. baby, my honey, my love. I love my Yatu. I love Yatu. And such a bubbly, incredible personality. So much fun. But wow, what a, what a gifted singer, you know? And he's so young. Yatu's only 19 now. And what? just, yeah, he's baby, baby, baby. We actually interviewed him a few months ago and I was so impressed with like how eloquent and uninhibited he was. He's just so unapologetically himself. And that's why I, I, I'm so shocked at the fact that he's 19 because when I was 19, I did not know myself like that. This is, I mean, Yato is very, also very unique. So I think his life path has forced him to um, self-examine and, and to sort of be comfortable with who he is, you know, um, and that's what, one thing I loved about him. And I just wanted to hold his hand and say, you, you, there's a place and a, a space for you in the world. Mm. You never have to conform. And so I love him for that. You know, I just, I wanted to make him feel loved and seen and acknowledged and celebrated. Um, I just love him. I really, I love his story. He lost his dad when he was very, very young. And his dad always loved and accepted him exactly as he is. And so he's got really, really great parents. In that sense. You know, one of the things that I, I, I loved about watching you as a, a mentor on The Voice was that, you know, you it seemed like you really cared 
about your team members and you really identified with them and, you know, hearing you talk about uh, Yatu uh, confirms my, um, confirms my belief, but for people, for musicians who are listening to this, who are up and coming, who are maybe struggling, who are looking to get their foot into the door, uh, what piece of advice would you give to them? Perhaps some advice that you'd given to your your team members over the seasons. The one thing I've learned um, over the years and was also affirmed for me on The Voice was that a lot of people have really great talent, really, really gifted, but they don't actually believe they can make it or deserve to make it. So they'll do the work, they'll do the demos, they'll do the performances, but deep inside, they've left a huge gap that says, I'm not going to make it anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to try, but I'm not going to make it anyway. And for me, that's a fundamental problem because that means you're going to work your butt off, but you won't make it mm. because you have to buy into it. You have to buy into it 1,000%, 100,000%. You can't expect the industry to believe in you more than you believe in yourself. It's going to have to come from you. And then once you believe in yourself, then you have the guts to go out there and do things. You know what's wonderful about this industry now is that you don't even have to be signed to a record label. You don't even, you know, there's so many platforms. There's so many ways that you can put music out and put music out yourself. There's the beauty of social media, mm-hmm. you know, so you're not limited in any way. So there's really no excuse in that sense. Um, the only limitation really comes from the artists themselves. So talent alone is not enough. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to be, you've got to take so much responsibility and know that it's your path and you can shape it whatever way you want. That's such, such good advice. And Lyra, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me today on Text Talks. And I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I hope that you and your family have a great festive season in, in, in you. your beautifully decorated house um you need to drop me a photo i need to see what it looks like i will i I love it so much (laughs) thank you so much and you too as long as you feel it in your heart and your mind won't ever let it go and your words can't even fully explain it no as long as you feel your passion deeply As long as your mind can see it clearly The possibility is exciting All you need to use is your brain Yeah.
check out texttalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side. <laughs>